All right. Romans chapter 8, kind of. I mean, have Romans 8. We're never going to get back to Romans 8 at this point. All right. This is one of those situations. A couple of things. A couple of things. One, uh, between Sunday school and church, we were talking about the whole plagiarizing scandal with Ed Litton from the Southern Baptist Convention. Let me just remind everyone, if you see anyone talking about it or hear anyone talking about it, remind them that the real issue, the plagiarizing issue is a big deal, but the bigger deal is the issue that no one's talking about, and that's Ed Litton's doctrinal statement on the Trinity, that he was called out at the convention for it, uh, which says that uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three parts of one God, which is completely heretical. He got called out. He ignored it. Albert Moeller ignored it. Everyone ignored it, and you know, depending on who you listen to, 52 seconds later, a minute later, three minutes later, that part of the statement of the doctrinal statement was just magically deleted from the church website, and no explanation has been given, and he has not been questioned, and he's still not been forced to give an answer. So my view of the Southern Baptist Convention right now is they have a president who is a Trinity is a heretic when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity until he either repents of his past heresy or explains what he actually believes on it, but it appears he's not going to do either. Nobody seems to care, and everybody's focused on the plagiarizing. The plagiarizing is serious, but it's a distraction from what's more important, which is having the right God. Amen? And so, I've stated before, I know we've got listeners right now who attend Southern Baptist churches. I... If I was a member of a Southern Baptist church, I don't know what I, I don't know what I would do. You know, I don't know what I would do. I may have to revoke my membership and just I don't know, or or stay there but don't support it. I I don't know what you do, but I would hate to be in anything closely. I wouldn't want to be in anything rec- even remotely connected to the Southern Baptist Convention right now. Um, and who knows if this plagiarizing plagiarizing story continues to. He may get brought down because of the plagiarism. And if he gets brought down because of the plagiarism, then the Southern Baptist Convention is going to be thrown into a whole crazy power vacuum chaos. So if you hear people talking about it, just make sure the, Trinita- the Trinitarian issue is the issue that we cannot let people forget. All right, that's, that's the issue that should concern us. All right, with all of that said, we are in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we are going to look at six words, right? Six words that every Christian should know, Correct? And those six words are, if you have them, okay, let's see if y'all have someone, I'm hearing some of them. First one, foreknow or foreknowledge, number two, predestination, number three, calling, number four, justification, number five, glorification, and number six, Elect or election. All right, those are six words every Christian needs to know. Before we can get to <clears throat> before we can get to those six words, if I don't lose my voice, before we get to those six words, though, I'm trying to lay a foundation. And why am I trying to lay a foundation before we get to those six words? Why am I trying to do this? Those six words are so controversial, right? And you got to you you mentioned the word predestination or foreknowledge, and everybody loses their mind and they go crazy. And I'm thinking there's no reason to go crazy because if you're going to go crazy, you should have gone crazy earlier on in the chapter, right? Because earlier on in the chapter, we are confronted with some very serious subjects, right? We're confronted uh, with the fact that God subjected all of creation to vanity, not according to the will of the creation. That's pretty dramatic, yes? He did so in hope. How could he subject it in vanity and hope? Because he knew that he was going to work all things out ultimately for good, right? And then we know that he works all things for good. Whichever one loves that verse, but if you think about that, that requires God to be what? Sovereign over what? Everything, okay? So it's like people love the concept, but they don't want to take the concept to its logical conclusion. So what we stepped back and we said, okay, let's look at the doctrine of God's what? providence. And we've been looking at God's providence. We went through all of that. I'm not going to review. This is one of those mornings where we're kind of right here in the middle of something. And all I can really do is try to finish this up and clean it up. And then then we can move on. I can't really try to go through this really quick and then move on to the next thing because that's not going to work. So I, I, I hate when I'm caught in the middle here. 
but I'm just going to try to push this through and then try to finish it, and whenever we finished, we're finished. Does that make sense? All right, what are we utilizing for this discussion? Grudem Systematic Theology, okay? And everybody knows that I'm using Grudem Systematic Theology. Um, I've got to find it right here. It disappeared for me, all right? Now, let me see. Where do we want to... Um, here we go. We've looked at a lot of verses that speaks on how God uses the evil actions of men, right? And when we start looking at that, we had to start thinking of how do we, rela- how do we understand this, right? Here's God... And clearly, evil things happen, and the Bible speaks of God basically as, as using them for his own purpose and his own good, right? And, and, and sometimes, like, whoa, how do we understand this? And it's very difficult to try to process it, right? Here's God, here's evil, but God is using evil, allowing the evil. And, and we've talked about it and talked about it. So we, we started allowing Grudem to try to explain how we are to interpret and understand this. And he started giving us some principles, right? I think I gave you three so far, right? I gave you three. So that means we only really have like two left. <laughs> so it really makes it a weird sermon. So we're going to go back. And last week we took a break because we, we try to take the theology and put it in and apply it to a real life situation, Right? The collapse of the condo there in Florida, yes? And so I think that, th- I thought that was very important to do. So now we're going to go back and just try to understand. So let's, let's try to, let's try to real, re- let's try to remind it th- or think of it this way. God is holy. God is sovereign. God is all knowing. God is all powerful. Everyone say amen to all of that. Evil is in the world. Yes? If God is all powerful and all knowing and evil is in the world, there's only one logical thing you can deduce, right? Well, he obviously allowed it, yes? Okay, and if all things work together for good, not only does he allow it, he uses it for his purpose. It raises all kinds of questions, right? Raises all kinds of questions. And it gets down, and I think Sarah asked this question early on in the series, and it's a tough question to ask, right? Okay, if God allows evil, uses evil for his purpose and his glory, and he's sovereign over it, then what? how do I understand my sin? Did God know I was going to sin? Did God stop my sin? Could God have intervened at any point in time? If I, if I believe the Bible to be an accurate uh, uh, dis- description of history, he steps in all the time, right? Did he, did he stop? Did he, step, did he not st- uh, step in when Abram offered up his wife saying, that's just my sister? Did he step in and prevent anything from happening in, in those cases? Did he step in and prevent David? Now, we got to be very careful here, right? This is where this is where it gets really nervous because if you're not careful, you step over into heresy, right? But by ignoring it, then you're, you're, you, you've got an incomplete picture. The comp- sometimes, think about it this way. Sometimes truth is far, makes you far more nervous and is far more difficult than what you hold on to to make you feel better, right? Sometimes certainty, I, I've stated this so many times, certainty is the enemy of truth. Certainty is the enemy of truth. We, I know you may, not, you may not want to confess this, but many people who sit in the pew, they want certainty more than they want truth. So they want a little nice little answer with their nice little Christian bumper sticker and their nice little Christian cliche. And when you leave their nice little comfortable area and you try to get them closer to the truth, they get very upset with you really quick. Because they, they, they don't like that. But if you want truth, you got to deal with the lack of certainty sometimes. I don't know how this relates. God, knew, God knows you're going to sin. He doesn't intervene and stop it. Now, you can't say that God wants you to sin because the Bible clearly says He doesn't. God is steer, clearly against your sin because He is. But we also know that God sometimes uses sin for His purpose and His glory. I don't know how we reconcile this. Grudem is trying to give us some at least general principles, all right? So if you don't have anything else down from this long series on God's providence, let's try to get these down and let's try to understand this. Are you ready? Here we go, all right? Um, 
He, uh, he says, uh, this is how Grudem has it, analysis of verses relating to God and evil. After looking at so many verses that speak of God's providential use of evil, of evil action of men and demons, what can we say by way of analysis? Here's his points. Anybody remember number one? Okay, good. God uses all things to fulfill his purpose and even uses evil for his glory and for our good. What's a good example of him doing this? Okay, well, Joseph would be a a, a very good one because uh, he says God meant it for good. You did evil actions, God meant it for good. That, That one's actually right there just given to us. The Job situation, God is obviously involved in it. We just don't really know. We do, he does it for his glory. I, I guess you could argue he did it in some ways for Job's good, but in the Joseph situation, there's no debate, right? Uh, I think it's Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, all right? So God uses all things to fulfill his purpose, even uses evil for his glory and for our good. Now, what can we, what, just take that concept does anybody need me to repeat it? Right. If you need, okay, if you need, that's fine, right? Now, let, now look, thinking caps on. Right? Now, read that again. God uses all things. Right? And all things include what? Even evil. Even evil. All right. Now, that means... That, oh, i got to be so careful how, how, careful how I say this, but you got to put your thinking caps on. That means he even uses your sin. Does that justify your sin? No. Does not justify it. Don't ever allow you. But you have to realize that even in your sin, God knew it and God is going to use it. What you want to know is, God, how are you going to use it for your glory and how are you going to use it ultimately for my good? And you've got to put yourself in a position where you can learn from it. Whether it's humbling, whether it's embarrassing, whether it's breaking you, whether it's killing you, you know, killing you in a spiritual sense. If it's, if it's, if it's bringing that about, then you welcome it. You, you don't welcome the fact that you sinned. You don't say, hey, Lord, thank you that I sinned. You say, Lord, thank you that even in my sin, you're going to use it for your glory and my ultimate spiritual good. All right? Does that make sense? It's hard to keep that right way of thinking. Now, you know what? I'm going to say this. In some ways, at times, it may frustrate you. And sometimes it may make you very irritated, right? Because you know what I would prefer God do? Keep me from sinning. What, What would you prefer? Would you prefer sin, scandal, shame, embarrassment, humiliation, pain, crying, Tears, or would you prefer all of that is avoided because God intervened and stopped the sin? Which would you prefer? So guess what? That can make you a little angry because you're like, God, why didn't you help me out here? Right? You've got to be what... Sometimes when it comes to theology, we can, we can express theology in one way that everybody says amen to in the pulpit, but you've got to really... All right, in the pew, and you've got to sometimes think about it. Well, wait a minute. That's kind of troubling. God uses all of this. Why didn't he just stop it? Why didn't he just prevent it? Right? Number two. God never does evil and is never to be blamed for it. All right? And a statement similar to those cited above from Acts chapter 2 verse 23 and Acts chapter 4 verses 27 through 28 Jesus also combines God's predestination of the crucifixion with moral blame on those who carry it out. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Luke chapter 22, verse 22, Matthew 26, 24, and Mark 14, 21. What's, what's the main focus on this? Is that, was Christ predestined to be crucified and lifted up? Yes, he was predestined. However, who carried it out? Sinful men. Are the sinful men excused because they were carrying out what was ultimately predestined? No. All right. Does that make sense? Do do we need to look up all of those scriptures? Do we need to look up any of those? 
Let, let's go to the Acts ones really quick. Go to Acts, I think, Acts 2.23. Let's just look at it because I kind of saw, kind of got that feeling that maybe people are like, huh, what? I'm not so sure I believe you. What are you talking about? Okay. Acts 2.23. We'll go to Acts 2.22 for context. Acts 2.22. Everybody there? You men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, who God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him, speaking of Christ, being delivered by the what? The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Why was Christ delivered up? God determined it and God foreordained it. He foreknew it. Correct? However, ye, speaking of the men of Israel, have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. All right, what is contained in that verse? God's foreknowledge, His determinate purpose, and men's sinful actions. Both are true at the same time. I don't know how I, I don't know how to reconcile that. I wish I could reconcile. There's no easy way. I did evil. God knew I was going to do evil. In fact, it would have been predetermined. But he does it ultimately for his glory and for my spiritual good. I I wish I could understand it. I wish I could understand it, but I cannot understand it. All right? So so what was number one? God uses all things to fulfill his purpose and and even uses evil for his glory and for our good. Number two, God never does evil and is never to be blamed for evil. Right? Everybody got that? Right? Number three. God rightly blames and judges moral creatures for the evil they do. All right? Okay, give me one second here because... All right, here we go. So God rightfully blames and judges moral creatures for the evil they do. I'm going to read specifically what Grudem says here for time's sake. All right? Instead of doing my own commentary. I uh, know this is the same, uh, the one we were just on. Okay. All right. So let's go through them again. Number one, God uses all things to fulfill his purpose and even uses evil. Number two, never, ne- uh, God uses, God never does evil and never to be blamed for evil. And number three, God rightfully blames and judges moral creatures for the evil they do. Many passages in scripture affirm this. One is found in Isaiah. Those who have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations I will choose affliction for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 3 through 4. In a similar way, we read, God made man upright, but they have sought out many devices. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29. The blame for evil is always on the responsible creature, whether man or demon, who, do, who does it, and the creature who does evil is always worthy of punishment. Scripture consistently affirms that God is righteous and just to punish us for our sins. And if we object that, that he should not find fault with us because we cannot resist his will, then we must ponder the Apostle Paul's own response to this question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, man, to answer back to God? Will what is modeled say to the molder, why have you made me this way? That's Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 20. In every case where we do evil, we know that we, that we willingly choose to do it and we realize that we are right to be blamed for it. Bottom line is, who is blamed for evil? We are. Now, go to the Romans 9 passage really quick. I don't want us to get too distracted here because, man, when we get there, it's going to be, whoo, some controversy, some controversy, all right? Okay, go to Romans chapter 9. All right, here we go. Uh, We'll go to verse 11. Okay. Oh, man, there's so much here we could talk about. All right. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. For the children, this is speaking of whom? 
Jacob and Esau. All right. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. So, speaking of these children, now, whatever he's getting ready to tell us happened to these children, it happened before what? Before they were born, before they've done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve whom? The younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So when did he love one and hate the other? Before they were born. Right? Nobody likes it. Does anybody like that verse? Okay, I don't like that verse. Okay. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now, why would he ask that question? Because anybody who reads that immediately wants to say, well, that's messed up. Yes? Okay, it's not fair. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom? Uh, Whoever he will have mercy on. And he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. So then, is it not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy? So in other words, who is it? It, it, It's up to God. It's his will. It's up to God's will. Now that sounds good, but that's going to raise a question, right? Well, if it's God's will, then why should I get blamed for anything? Amen? Yes? Now look what he says. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, I have raised thee up that I might show my power in thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. That doesn't sound wonderful, does it? What was the purpose of Pharaoh being brought into this earth? So God, for him to be raised up so that God can do what? Against him and on him. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and, uh, and, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt sayeth unto me, why do you yet find fault for who re- hath resisted his will? You see the question? How can you blame me? Because I can't, re- can you resist God's will? So if God's will is for you to do something, can you stop doing it? Like, I have a hard time trying to wrap my mind around this because this, what you come to, how does, it, how does it come to my individual sin? If God ordained me to commit a sin, could I resist his will? No. Am I still blamed? Oh, that is so it's messed up in some ways. Yes? As, as far as what? Right. If he doesn't always tell us what the purpose is. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes we don't, we don't, we, 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 that Job never got the what. And that, that's something we always have to remember. Okay. Now he says, uh, goes on. Nay, but O man, who art thou that rep, uh, repliest against God? Shall the thing form say unto the thing that formed it? Why hast thou made me thus? You can't get mad at God. If God makes you a, for a certain purpose, you can't get mad. And that, you know what he's saying? Hey, Pharaoh, you can't get mad. I brought you up simply to pour my, uh, my, uh, my power against you. You can't get mad. Why? Because God's the one who, who, who accomplished it. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Now, you may say amen to that, but you say amen to that only in which... Who says amen to that verse? Who are the people who say uh, amen to verse 21? I think uh, Lydia is saying it. Only the people who are made to honor. The people made to dishonor. Hey, thank you for making me a vessel unto dishonor. I am so grateful that you made me a vessel. Does anybody say, (laughs) yeah, you say amen when you're sitting in church and it's like, yay, amen. Now, we we don't like this if it's referencing possibly someone who we love and uh, a family member. We, We change our mind relatively quick, right? Verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessel of mercy, which he hath before prepared unto glory. We'll go back to verse 22. What if, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endureth with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? What does that mean? What, are, what is a vessel fitted for destruction? Well, it, it's speaking of someone made for destruction. And Judas is a good example. Pharaoh seems to be a good example. Now again, you say amen to that until it refers to whom? 
Well, that's when it really gets, that's when it, now, now that's when it gets emotional. What if it's one of your children? Now Christians don't like this. Christians get really upset about this. Like, I didn't write any of this. I'll make sure I understand. I didn't write Romans 9. So don't email me. Okay, Find Paul's email and send it to him. Right? I didn't write it. Okay? Now I can do a lot of, I can spend a lot of time trying to explain this away. Could I not? I could spend hours trying to explain it away, but I would say the language here is pretty clear, is it not? Right? So the point is here. This is very important. God blames the creature. Who gets blamed? Does God or Pharaoh? Pharaoh. Who gets blamed? God or Judas? Who gets blamed? God or David? Who gets blamed? God or Peter? For denying him three times. He warned him. But you think, again, God's intervening power, he stepped in and did a lot of things, right? And again, when it says mercy and destruction, I want you to just realize how, it's just crazy. Did Abraham lie? Yes, he lied. Did Ananias and Sapphira lie? Abram got rich for lying. Ananias and Sapphira died. What's supposed to be the uh, punishment for uh, murder? It's supposed to be capital punishment, right? That's what Christians always say, capital punishment. Let's go through this. Did Moses murder someone? Did God have him killed? No, actually used him to write five books of the Bible and to lead his people. Isn't that crazy, right? Did David have someone murdered? Did David die? He said, well, he killed the baby. The, the scripture doesn't say that someone else should die. It says you were supposed to die, right? Did Paul have people killed? Used to be, isn't that great? Like we are like, the Bible, te- I love when Christians run around, the Bible preaches capital punishment. And then I give you all these examples where people should have been put to death and were not because God will have mercy. And he doesn't ask you if he should have mercy on the person, correct? I mean, let's be honest. If, if David was in a church today, would he be writing scripture? Would he be writing the hymns that you were singing? Come on. No. Right? He would be thrown out. He'd be gone. He'd be removed. He'd be finished. Well, why? Isn't it weird how that works? Now, we don't blame God. We blame the people. That's what I want you to understand. But God knew all of these things were going to take place. Does everybody understand that? All right. So, what was number one? Let's go through it again. God uses all things, including what? Evil. Number two? God never does evil or is to be blamed for evil. Evil Number three, God blames and judges moral creatures for the evil they do. It's my responsibility, it's your responsibility. I don't understand how that works, but it's my responsibility. Right? Even though we have right here God doing whatever he wants, but he says, who, who am I to argue against God? All right, that brings us to number four. All right, you ready? Everybody ready? All right, evil is real, it's not an illusion, and we should never do evil, for it will always harm us and others. Evil is real, it's not an illusion, we should never do evil, for it will always harm us and others. All right, I'm going to have to just read this for time's sake, all right? Everybody good with that? Scripture consistently teaches that we never have a right to do evil, and that we should persistently oppose it in ourselves and in the world. We are to pray, deliver us from evil. And if we see anyone wandering from the truth and doing wrong, we should attempt to bring him back. Scripture says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, someone and someone brings him back, let him know that whosoever brings back a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. We should never even will evil to be done for entertaining sinful desires in our mind is, is to allow them to wage war against our souls. Right? So simply put, what do we must understand? Evil is, is a real thing. Sin is a real thing. It's not an illusion. And we should never seek to do it. Now, this is another hard thing to deal with Christianity. 
Are we called to never sin? Yes. Are we called to be holy? Yes. At the same time, what is everyone in this room painfully aware of? Can't do it. What are we all painfully aware that we still exist inside of us? Sinful nature. Right? Isn't that... Isn't that now, this is the situation where you would go, okay, does God want me to be holy? We say he wants me to be holy. What did he not remove when you got saved? Your sinful nature. Well, if he wants me to be holy, wouldn't it make sense to get rid of my sinful nature? Then what could I be? So somehow, it's a part of God's plan for me still to have what? A sinful nature. Therefore, as long as I have a sinful nature, what is... You see how... I don't even know how we try to make this work in a church, right? Because we're all here. We all know we're supposed to... And th- this is why the church has developed ideas like mortal and venial sin. You see why a church would develop mortal and venial sin, right? Does God want you to be holy? Yes. Are you ever going to be holy? No. All right. Well, since... Is everyone going to sin? Yes. If you break one point of the law, you're guilty of? Oh, all right. So... How are we going to work this? We got to find a way to we got to find a way to manage this correctly. All right. So, is every sin the same? In practice, we we, we it's not the case, right? Seth came to me this morning and said, "Hey, Lydia has been very unsubmissive the last two weeks. It's really out of control. It's really really bad. I mean, she's talking back. She's just not listening, and she's just she's not submitting. I mean, in fact, she she's I mean, she could write a book on how not to submit." Right? She may put forth a good front, but it's all a lie. All right? Okay. So, what do I, so, what do I do? Now, have anybody ever seen a woman brought up in church discipline for being unsubmissive? No. Right? Does scripture tell a, a, a wife to submit herself to her husband as unto the Lord? Okay. I think in many cases, everyone in the church knows that the woman is not. I think in many cases, everybody's like, yeah, okay. We know who runs that family. Okay. All right. I think in most of the cases, you can see it, right? So, I mean, just be honest. I don't think I've ever seen this happen in a church. Okay. Now, uh, men and pornography. Have you ever seen men get in trouble in church for pornography? Oh, I've seen that happen. In many cases, the wife will go tell the pastor that the, her, caught her husband looking at porn, and guess, guess who gets called into the pastor's office? Husband. And then guess what usually happens? Okay, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to hold you accountable. You've got to put software in your computer. you got to do, 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 do all these things. Well, So which one got treated as a mortal sin? Which one got treated as the venial? Now, look, it's not a perfect system, all right? I'm by no means saying, what am I not saying? No, I'm not saying excuse all sin. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making a judgment on which one. I'm just saying that we, we, this is the reality we live in. We live in a reality that we know we're going to sin, even though we're called not to. See, this point tells us we're not to pursue evil. evil. Evil sin is real. Sin is real, but we're not to do it. But at the same time, what do we all have to realize? We're all going to do it. So how do we manage it? How do we manage it? I've seen pastors brought down for a lot of sins. Some of the sins that are mentioned in 1 Timothy as your actual requirements for a menace, a pastor... You rarely see sometimes people brought them down. Apt to teach. I've seen pastors who clearly are not apt to teach. Pride. I've seen pastors demonstrate pride. I mean, I've seen some of those things that are clearly outlined and then we add things to it that are not even there and then we say that's the thing that brings you down because we're all trying to figure it out, right? I don't know how you figure it out. So when should someone be church disciplined, not be church disciplined? I don't know. Now, unrepentant sin where they just like leave me alone, okay, obviously, right? But I'm just saying that that's, that's the difficulty of the Christian life. Are we called to sin? No. Are we called to be holy? Yes. Are we all going to sin? Could God have removed the sinful nature? Yeah. In fact, some Christians try to pretend that he did. Right? I, I, uh, one of my friends in Nebraska, we, we got into a back and forth discussion. And uh, I, he, I guess he, 
I guess it's the first time he realized that I don't believe that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature, old things are passed away, and all things are become new. In a practical sense, I only believe that in a positional sense, and that's the way I'm to view people. And he was kind of shocked by this. And so, and his like, he's like, so wait a minute. So what you're saying is that we can't, that, that we cannot choose not to sin? And I'm like, no, we cannot choose not to sin, because if I could just simply choose not to sin, then I would never Sin. The fact is that we all sin, seeming to indicate that we can't simply choose not to sin. So not all the old is not clearly gone. What is still present? Sin. Did God, could God have gotten rid of it? Yes. Now some Christians literally believe that your old nature is gone, or they may even argue that the old nature is there, but yet now you have the power to choose not to sin. You know Christians who believe that. Well, but what do they always do? Sin, so where is your power? So my argument, if God didn't remove it, then what does God still, in his sovereign plan, still, it's part of his plan? My sin. Does that excuse it? No. Am I avoid it? Yes. You see how we're going to keep saying the same thing in different ways? God wants what's right, but we, we still do sin. God is sovereign. He doesn't stop it. But we're still responsible for it. I man, it's. I wish I had a better answer for. I wish I had a better answer. All right. So, what was number one? Quickly, God uses all things to fulfill His purpose, even uses evil. Number two, God never does evil; is never to be blamed for evil. Number three, God rightly blames and judges moral creatures for the evil they do. All right. Next. Evil is real, it's not an illusion, and we should never do evil, for it always harms us and others. Next. Are you ready? I love, this is the most brilliant statement in all of Grudem's systematic theology. I love this. Are you ready? And I'm going to quote word for word. And Now, don't write anything down yet. I'll read it, and then you'll summarize it, okay? In spite of all of the foregoing statements... We have to come to the point where we confess that we do not understand how is it that God can ordain that we carry out evil deeds and yet hold us accountable for them and not to be blamed himself. Simply put, what's the, how would you summarize this? We'll never understand it. We'll never understand it. Does God ordain the evil we do? Are we blamed for it? Is he not blamed for it? Does it make sense? No. Does not make any sense. All right? Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I see. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just read a little bit what he has here, all right? We can affirm that all the things are true. All these things are true because Scripture teaches them. But Scripture does not tell us exactly how God brings this situation about or how it can be, uh, and how it can be that God holds us accountable for what he has ordained to pass. Here, Scripture is silent, and we have to agree uh, that, the problem, uh, that the problem of God's relation to sin remains a mystery. I want you to hear that again. The problem of God's relationship to sin remains a mystery. God's relationship to sin remains a mystery. I don't understand it. Again, I I can just give you the perfect example. When you became a Christian, why wouldn't God get rid of it right then and there? Wouldn't that be the easiest solution? What does God want you to be? Well, if He wants me to be holy, why wouldn't He put me in a situation... Will I even have a chance to be holy? Do, do I even have a chance? No. Right? It's, it's probably, I've got a better chance of being holy than Joel has of beating me in basketball. Right? He has no chance. Okay, none. Zero. Not even humanly possible. Not in a million years. Well, I don't, I, I'm about that far removed from ever being holy before God. Impossible. No way, no how. Can you understand that? All right. Now, guess where Grudem goes with this? Are you ready? Oh, boy. Okay. No, he's, he's going to add, he's going to bring in a, now, th- that concludes all of that, 
All right, so we've concluded that. That's what we needed to conclude so that we can get now start the six words. But I want you to see what he does here because this is going to bring in all of the problems with these six words. All right, are you ready? He's going to ask a question. Are we free? Do we have free will? Question mark. Now, let's just start right here. Okay, well, it has to, it, 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 this is where it's all going to lead to. So let me just say this. When anyone says free will, right? When anyone says man has free will, there is a problem from the very moment they state those words, right? What are, what are some of the logical fallacies of claiming that man has a free will? What are some of the logical fallacies with stating this? Let's go through them. I won't even read what he has to say here. Just think about it. Y'all been in this church long enough? Y'all, y'all should know this stuff? Y'all should be able to cover this subject anytime and anywhere? Well, not, let's not say apparently not. Let's just say, let's argue that, okay, oh, you're going to say someone has a free will. There's some logical problems with this. Okay, there you go. All right, here's the issue. Now, if I believe in free will, what do I have to believe in? That there is no depravity in me. Or unless you're going to try to find some way to keep the will separate. I have to deny the doctrine of total depravity. Now, the minute you deny the doctrine of total depravity, what's the logical problem with that? Okay, let me, let me explain it this way so everyone can follow. Me and Bobby work with each other, right? And he says, hey, what church do you go to? I go to, well, what do y'all believe? We believe in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Oh, you're one of those Calvinists? You don't believe people have free will. Well, I believe people have free will. I'm like, oh, you do, Bobby. Okay, well, that's wonderful. Do you believe that we're born sinners and we're depraved? Yeah, I believe we're born sinners and we're depraved. Well, if you believe we're born sinners and depraved, then how is your will free? Well, the will's just free. Okay, Bobby, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to quote any scripture. You have a free will? Think, I work with you. What I want to see from now to the time we stop working together is I want to see a sinless person because you have a will that's free to choose to never sin. And guess what Bobby's going to demonstrate? Probably, if I keep arguing with him, probably in a couple of minutes, I could probably even bring out the sinful nature to demonstrate that you don't have a free will to stop sinning. Yes? Every person who's ever argued with me about free will, that's what I simply say. Well, if you have a free will, stop sinning. Because free wouldn't mean... You're free to do what? Not sin. Has anyone ever pulled that off? Okay. So then immediately, what would you have to say? They claim it, but I mean, it, it, I, I mean, I, I, when I first moved to Nebraska, the, the first pastor we came across was a holiness pastor, and he, uh, he claimed this idea that he was without sin, and it was, it was garbage. We, we, saw it, we saw him demonstrated in, in ways he dealt with situations. Um, you know, I mean, there's just a hundred situations I could go into that it was clearly demonstrated. Your sinful nature is going to be seen, right? And if the sinful nature is there, then the will cannot be free, because to be free would be what? That there is no influence on the will from anything, right? The will is completely free. It's not free because sin is there. So my, I don't argue with people. I don't quote scripture. I'm just like, just prove it. Just prove it. Now, my friend in Nebraska seemed absolutely shocked and appalled <laughs> that I don't believe people can freely choose not to say. I don't know. I'm like, how, why would I think you can just simply stop sinning? Like, like you don't, so he's like, well, what is even the point? What's even the point? The point is God tells me not to sin. That's the point. But if you can't not do it, isn't that ridiculous? I'm like, I wanted to see, so you've been a Christian all of these years, you haven't realized you can't stop sinning? I'm like, yeah, you have to start asking these people, they must redefine sin. That's the thing. They have to redefine sin. And I know that I sin. Look, look, uh, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Boom, I'm in trouble. Love your neighbor as yourself. Boom. Put others before yourself. I mean, I'm already in trouble, right? Blessed are the pure in heart. Anybody here got a pure heart? You may think you got a pure heart until you hooks up to a video screen and everybody gets to see what's going on. So I want you to see the logical problems. To say, 
that there is free will, you have to deny the doctrine of depravity. If you claim there's free will, you should be able to demonstrate that your will is free by simply choosing to never sin. So, uh, in some way, shape, or form, everyone has to acknowledge that the will is that we do not have complete free will. Can we agree with that? You have to. You have to. Now, anything beyond, I'm not saying, and I've already got people listening online are going to start saying, oh, don't, don't jump to any conclusions. I'm just making a, a clear observation that we all can acknowledge. If I claim my will is free, I have to remove the fact that I have a sinful nature. I cannot remove that because that's my whole understanding of the world, right? Why is the world so messed up? Totally depraved. That, that explains why no matter, you can, we need more education. You educate more people, still sin and horrible act. No matter what we do, right? Violence, crime, rape, murder, stealing. I mean, it's, the world is so messed up. The, the one thing that gives me comfort from the Christian worldview is at least I know why the world is so messed up. That's depravity. I can't throw out the doctrine of depravity. Well, if I can't throw out the doctrine of depravity, where does my will exist? Inside of me, what is inside of me? Depravity. So you're going to tell me the will is not impacted by that depravity? That would be the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Number two, if, my, if you're going to claim that your will is not impacted by depravity, then you should be able to demonstrate your position by simply choosing to never sin. And no one has ever been able to pull that off. Everyone in the Bible sins. Yes? Okay, except for one, obviously, Jesus Christ, who did not have a sinful nature, right? Okay, does that make sense? So, when we talk about free will, just understand, the minute you throw out that term, you've got to stop and go, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. Because what people are saying is, they're, they're trying to claim, I have, a free, I have a freedom to choose, but they, they, you've got to just stop them and say, before we get into whether you can choose God or not choose God, before we even get into that, let's just start with these basic Ideas. Do you believe in human depravity? Yes. If you believe in human depravity, you cannot believe in free will because free will exists inside of you where the depravity exists. Yes? All right. If you, if you say, well, my will is not impacted by my depravity, well, then that makes no sense. That means if the will is not impacted by depravity, I could go to anyone, right? I could go out on the street to anyone who's lost. I could go to any high school and say, everyone, just choose to do good. Has that worked in human history? I mean, think about all the things humans do. Rarely is it beneficial to do the bad things. Does war ever really make sense? No. I mean, but people do evil. So you can't, if, 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 if the will is free, they don't even need Christ. People could just freely choose to do what? Be holy. So you know what Christ could say? I don't need to die for you. Just be holy and you'll get into heaven. Because your will is free. But that doesn't work, does it? All right, so if you claim the will is free, it has to be free for everyone, then everyone can choose to be uh, without sin. It doesn't work. So if the idea of free will falls apart before we even look at a Bible verse. It just falls apart logically. Does that make sense? Again, let me make it very clear. Every friend of yours that argues they have free will, what do you do? Do you, do you start arguing scripture with them? No, what do you simply say? Prove it. Yeah, just stop sinning. And if they come back to you and say, you're right, I've stopped sinning, then you want to find a new friend. You may want to call them a a mental hospital and get them committed because they're probably nuts if they think that they've stopped sinning. Okay? Right? They may be a psychopath. Maybe they're in trouble. All right? Okay, if they can really convince themselves that they're without sin, you probably want to run as far as you... And I'm not joking. I mean, that, that's a scary person to act like that. they don't ever sin. That's a scary person to be around. That's a very scary person. Because they have, they're living in some alternate reality. They can't even see. I mean, even from just human morality, we let people down. Do we not lie? Do we not deceive? Do we not do things for our own purpose and our own agenda? Are we... Did we not... I mean... Marriage is just a marriage. There's conflict within a marriage which almost always demonstrates what? Selfishness and pride. Someone is fighting for their own way, right? 
What does that demonstrate? Sin? Like nobody can argue that they, they, their will is that free. It's not. So, if, so immediately, what do we have to look at? If my will's not free, now here's the question. How does it, my will, in sin, not free, to, to just choose not to sin, how does that will now come into play when it comes with God and salvation? That's the million-dollar question, and that's where the debate is. There should be no debate on the, uh, the, the basic level. No, no will is what? Here, here's how we can say it. No will is what? Completely free. We can say that. Does that make sense? That we can be dogmatic on. We can prove that. That's something that can be proven. Some the- theological things you can't prove. right? There's some theological things you can prove. Right? God guarantees healing for anyone. All right, that clearly can be proven not to be true. All right, number two, my will is completely free. That can clearly be proven. There's some things that can be clearly proven. I don't even need to argue. And if someone doesn't, can't even argue with reality, there's no point in quoting scripture, <laughs> right? If they can't see that, there's no point. Now, when it comes to my salvation, my will, God's will, how does that work? I'm all willing to allow for struggle there. But I'm not going to allow for struggle on the basic level because the basic level can be proven without even quoting a scripture. Does that make sense? All right. That's not even a scriptural argument. That becomes a logical, evidence-based argument. All right. We'll stop right there. Make sure there's not... um, Okay. Comments. Okay, good. I don't see any comments. Hopefully, make sure I don't have, you know, 500 emails calling me a heretic. Okay. And what I love is when people get mad at me about this. <laughs> I love when people get mad at me over this free will argument and then they email you and they demonstrate a sinful attitude in their email. <laughs> I'm like, Thank you for approving my point, okay? Because if you have a free will, you should be able to discuss this without demonstrating sin, all right? But you can't, all right? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. This is some very complicated issues. I, I pray that we'll look at those notes, think about it, But there is a reality here that every person in this room has to acknowledge. We just can't understand how you relate to sin, your will, our will, what we do when we commit sin, yet we're still responsible. We will never quite understand this, Lord, and we have to be willing to embrace this fact that we cannot completely understand it. We can take these points and try to build a a foundational understanding, but ultimate true understanding will not occur until we are in your presence. Allow Allow this to humble us and that we do not say what we do not know and that we don't try to create a belief system to explain what we cannot understand. And I ask you to just guide and protect us from committing any of these wrongs. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...